Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. We are in session 15 in our look at the book of Revelation, but we're doing some background work before we get back into the book proper. Uh, we've been taking a look at the seven churches that Jesus himself dictates letters to through the pen of the Apostle John. And we, uh, we needed to take a look through what the rest of the Bible says about this magnificent book. But as always, before we get involved with Scripture, we always want to do so in a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Our all-wise and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you now, it is again that we ask for you to enlighten us um, fully to your word, that we would not come to it with our own reservations or our own misconceptions, but our hearts and our minds would be completely open to what you would teach us. And we ask, Lord, that you would preserve your spirit of peace within each and every one that enters into the study now as we seek not to look for division, but for hope. Not to look for conflict, but to look forward to the coming of our King. So join with us now as we commit ourselves and this hour into your hands without any reservation. In the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now just by way of quick review, what we're studying about is what I like to call the, the hard prophecy part of the book of prophecy. As you probably know by now, when it comes to the study of scriptures, I am very much a conservative. That means that I take the Word of God very seriously. Um, I don't always take everything literally. Let me explain that for a second. For instance, I, I do understand that there are other parts of speech in the Bible. I understand that figures of speech happen. I understand that when Jesus says, O Jerusalem, how I wish I could gather you under my wings, it does not mean that God has feathers. But parts of speech, those, those figures of speech in the Bible, are always identified. They're always announced so that the reader does not have to guess what is allegory and what is direct communication. The book of Revelation itself, in the very first chapter, identifies itself as a book of prophecy. And it provides the reader with a special blessing who takes it as such. Claim that blessing today. But as we continue into this study again, what we're covering right now is the precursor of the rapture throughout the rest of the Bible. Now up until this point I've told you that this would be in one session, but as I've done my research, um, covering the rapture in one session seems to be a bit of a Wishful thinking. I'm going to say that we will continue it in a part two next Wednesday, and it might even take further. I don't want this to hit you so fast that it becomes confusing. And I want to open everyone here to the full counsel of God and not just some cherry-picked verses from here and there. Are you with me so far? So we're going to take, we're going to pump the brakes just a little bit and take more time to, to digest it, because a misinterpretation of this area of prophecy 
has split churches, has caused people to look at each other instead of in Christian love and Christian resentment. And as I've mentioned earlier, when Christians form firing squads, they usually do so in a circle. I don't want this study to be a source of division. That's why I'm putting back Acts 1711 on the screen. Every time that I do a study, I always put this up as a disclaimer because when this church was being formed, when the church in Thessalonica was being formed, they not only received the Scripture with all willingness of heart, but they also searched the Scriptures daily to prove the things that Paul had said was so. So they being austere Jews, they did welcome the hope of the gospel, the love of Christ, and they accepted him as the Messianagi, the, the Christ, the King. But they compounded their faith. They reinforced their faith by not taking what Paul said at face value. But they went through the scrolls for themselves, for themselves, to make sure that every question was answered to their satisfaction. I want you to claim this today. Do not trust anything that I say as the final authority on this study. I hope that through the scriptures that we share together, through uh, the information that's on the slides and your handouts that are here and uh, soon to be on HighlandBaptistChurch.org, for those of you watching for us at home, uh, in the meantime, if they're not there, if you don't find them right now, uh, please just use uh, scratch paper. Unfortunately, and this is actually a prayer request for our community of faith, um, Oscar, the gentleman who does a lot with this, has come ill recently, and we do earnestly desire that you be in prayer for him. But continuing on this study, do your own homework, and I promise you that you will be blessed for it. Amen? All right. I also want you to take a look at these. Our branch of the, the Christian family tree, we are a people called Baptists. Unfortunately, there are many individual churches and even a few denominations that I could mention but will not that forget this thin structure that makes us what we are, that have forgotten our own history. Biblical authority, meaning that all teaching, all practices of the church that calls itself Baptist will have everything grounded in Scripture and not the traditions of men. The autonomy of the local church, meaning that whenever we combine forces with other churches, we do so voluntarily and not at the instruction of a bishop or another higher authority, because the only authority over the church is Christ. The priesthood of all believers, meaning that each and every one of you who is a regenerate Christian, you are a minister of Christ. You might not be called to pulpit ministry, but you are called to ministry. That's each and every one of us, and we all have bear that responsibility. Uh, the two offices, uh, deacon and pastor, individual soul liberty is another big one, meaning that on the foundations of the faith, on the elementary aspects of the faith, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, of Christ's direct sonship of God, of the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirits, of God the Father, of, of, the Trini of God being only one God. Of all of these things, we hold firm, but on these nitpicky points that are not salvific in nature, we live and let live. 
Do not let this study become the reason that somebody out there experiences a church split or worse, a state of disfellowship. Because what we're getting ready to talk into are people that are great scholars with wonderful theological minds at odds with each other. Claim that freedom and please be respectful of those that are in your groups with. Again, save church membership, uh, two ordinances, separation of church and state. And let me talk about that one for half a second because that means something different in this day and age than it did in the Enlightenment English period when that word was that, that phrase was carved out. In Baptist terms, separation of church and state means that the state has no authority over the church and that the church does not demand political authority directly over the nation, unlike, say, the Church of England or what the papacy tried to become. So anyway, what I really want you to claim from that in this study are the following. We are going to study the scriptures and everything that we formulate in our own minds for our our headbound theology is going to come from the Bible and the Bible alone. We are not going to compare ourselves to any other church but what we divide solely from the Scriptures, biblical theology. We are going to claim the fact that we are a priesthood of all believers, and we are going to live up to the commandment in 1 Peter 3.15, I believe it is, that says to always be ready to give an account of the, well, the hope that is within you. And lastly, respect the individuality of everyone here, meaning that on the nitpicky things. Now, it is often said, one of the reasons why this word is that, that rapture is so controversial in Christian living is it's said that the word rapture does not occur in the Bible. In fact, it does. The word in the original Greek from which we derive our New Testament is agapeo. The word then was translated into the Vulgate Latin, rapus, raptus, which when you anglicize it becomes rapture. It is, in fact, in the Bible several times. And, and this is a bad argument anyway, because those that claim this argument also uh, claim that even though the Trinity isn't mentioned in the Bible, it's nevertheless true. Anyway, so yes, rapture is in the Bible. According to the outline of biblical usage, it holds the following meanings. And I want you to underline these in your notes. To seize or to catch, to carry off by force. In other words, in quotations, write the word snatch. That's a more direct, literal, modern-day term. Basically, to pluck forcefully. Uh, to claim for oneself eagerly, as with a bride. We're going to talk about that more in just a second. To snatch out of or away from as in the bride from the, the, the bride's family's house. And we'll see why that, that means something in just a second. Looking back to the promise of this kind of meeting, Jesus himself, through his own voice, declares to us in John chapter, chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house. There are many rooms. I'll get into the translation there. Personally, I love the word mansions there instead. There's, I'll, I'll explain the translation in just a second. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. Now, 
we're not Jews in the Second Temple period. So there's a lot culturally going on here that Jesus is taking for granted and that John is taking for granted as he's pinning this down. And in order to get that, we really have to look into the culture of the day and the traditions of the day. Why they did what they did. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. You know the way where I am going. So just by quick review to explain the whole rooms and mansions thing. Uh, the room, the... the word that is translated my father's house is oikia. Now that means literally a building house, like we call this a house of prayer, a standing edifice. Or it can mean the family too. Like uh, from Scotland, my last name, Robbins, is a family of Clan, uh, good grief, it is a family member of Clan McGregor. It would be considered a house in England in uh, Sussex, where it originally hails from. The word that is used for rooms in this particular translation, mansions in the King James Version, is Monet, like the painter, not the greenback, which literally means a dwelling or abode or the place in which you make one's abode. So what Jesus is more literally saying in this phrase is in my father's family. There's room enough for all of you. Or in the cultural idiom, in my father's house, if you want to think about it that way, I'm already planning so that when I come for my bride, that room will be prepared, lovingly finished, just for her. And this is where we pick that up on. This is the prophetic echo that we have to look at when we consider what we call the rapture, the harpazo, however you want to call it. And that is the ancient Near Eastern, specifically Jewish wedding ceremony. It's patterned after the stories of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel, with Rachel and Leah. How, one, how they're taken from their father's home. How they are moved in the, in the dark of night, to be with their beloved, how their face is veiled in faith, and how they must redeem the bride. So this is the, this is the tradition that came about in reflection, in worshipped reflection of that passage of Scripture. First of all, the match was actually arranged by the families of both the husband and the wife prior, during their childhoods. Both were eligible for marriage upon being considered or reckoned as adults. In case you want to do some extra reading, the resources are listed there on the screen for you. The heavy one was the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia, incidentally. Then they had the ketubah, the commitment or the actual betrothal. We would call this the presenting of the ring. Only ladies, I'm sure that you would be saddened to find out that instead of a diamond, you would be presented with a cup of wine. Once the, after the arrangement had been made and after the bar mitzvah had gone by, after they were dedicated to themselves and then reached adulthood, reached a level of maturity where they could actively engage in physical matrimony, 
the husband to be presented, the wife to be with a cup of wine so that she could take it or she could refuse it. Remember, a full cup of wine in this culture represents joy. So if she took it, not only was she pledging herself to this person as her husband, she also is announcing before her family that I take joy in this opportunity, in my love for this man and my thought of beginning a family together. There was the moer, the payment of the price of redemption. More often than not, paid in silver, maybe in some other arrangements. But that's significant because silver in Scripture is emblematic of sacrifice. It's emblematic of the blood price, the redemption of the bride. The wife is then set apart, veiled, sanctified in more generalized terms in her commitment to her husband-to-be, consecrated to this marriage. The groom then prepares an addition to his father's house where they will begin their life together because, let's face it, they are getting married considerably younger than our culture likes to. So they're going to need the support, the wisdom, the guidance, and the extra hands of the family. So the, the soon-to-be husband, after she takes the glass of wine, hopefully, he runs back to his father's home tells him the good news, and then together with his brothers, they begin building a new addition, a bridal suite, onto the existing structure. This is the place where they'll begin their married life together. The bride, meanwhile, starts to adorn herself, starts picking out the veil, starts picking out the perfumes, starts picking out the way that she will present herself to her husband. And she does this all the while, not knowing the actual date of his return. Because this is something that you could not set a date by. You could project it. It might take you X number of months to complete a new room addition, probably longer. But you never could tell. So the bride is preparing herself and she's also gathering around her, her closest friends, with their lamps, extra oil, keeping them lit, trimmed and burning every night from that point forward to make sure that they're ready when the husband comes by. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning. That's where that song and that's also where that uh, parable of Christ comes from. For you know not the day or the hour. Exactly. No date was set because you never knew what would come up in the meeting. The groom's father, this is, this is the big wild card, after the room is supposedly finished, the groom's father, who is the master of the house, has to examine that room to make sure that it meets his specifications, it's not going to cave in, and that everything is just so. And once... He declares it to be. He tells his son, go and get your bride. So the groom in a surprise gathering grabs all of his closest male cohort. And by torchlight, they process from his father's house in a reenactment of the carrying out of, of Rachel and Leah from the house of Laban. By torchlight, they run to her house, 
They grabbed the bride who for so many months with her friends had been adorned and ready. And they take them to the city gate, which again acts as kind of like the city hall of this day. Later on in Second Temple Judaism, they would go to the synagogue once that had been established. And they experience the chuppah, which is the wedding ceremony proper. And then the wedding party, the whole wedding party, escorts the couple to their new home where they will begin their life together. And once the couple have consummated their relationship, then they are met with a lavish seven-day feast. Does this sound familiar? I go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, bring you unto myself. This is one of the reasons that Paul picks up on this almost instantly and refers to the church as the the bride of Christ. This is how it all fits together. So, in our scripture reading for this afternoon, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to skip down to verse 40. So, please go ahead and turn there in your copy of God's Word. Once you get there, say amen. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 40. Paul is trying to explain this whole concept of the resurrection. And he, he says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in its splendor. So it was with the resur- so it is, excuse me, with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Sown a natural body, it is raised supernatural. In your own copy of God's Word, either underline, highlight, or mark that in your flyleaf. We talked several weeks ago about the concept, C.S. Lewis's, for instance, of the natural versus the supernatural, and how God can enter, but now we're going to see how we do, effectively. The communion of, the, of nature and of the supernatural that was supposed to be there from the beginning. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, meaning Christ, became a living spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust, the second man is from heaven. So there is a significant change in substance, in dimensionality. Incapability, something that we don't have a grasp on because it doesn't fit our concept of reality. And that's one of the reasons that this teaching is so hard to digest because it it negates our frame of reference. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are all those who are of the dust. 
Like the man of heaven, so are all those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we will, future tense, also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, I love Paul, never use five words when 80 will do. Brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, or that's euphemistic for pass away, but we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's not the blinking of an eye. The blinking of an eye takes a fraction of a second. How long does it take for a beam of light to cross the width of a human iris? In an instant, in other words, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this incorruptible body must be clothed, for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal body must be clothed with immortality. And when the corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, when this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Christ Jesus. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Several things we can take away from this, but a couple I want to highlight really quickly. First of all, is that there is a difference. In order to have fellowship both with the supernatural and the natural, we have to have some kind of transformative change. We'll get into that in just a second. Also, it's a change that is not accomplished by us. It's a change that is accomplished by the working of God himself. It's a change that is apparently instantaneous. One of the things in the background that you want to know about 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is not actually the first letter Paul ever wrote to Corinth. It is one of four. I think it's actually speculated to be number two. But the Corinthian church at this time had some people that were not wanting to do anything in their actual work life because they believed Paul when he said it could be any moment now. As in it was going to be any moment now. Before I get to retirement age, Christ is going to come back. So why bother to work? What Paul is telling them here basically is, yes, this is going to happen. And it's going to be glorious. And just as I preached to you earlier, there are no qualifying events for this particular resurrection. We'll, we'll talk about qualifying events in the next session. But still do the work of the ministry. Still provide for your families. While we look forward with gleeful expectation of the coming of Christ, do not use that as an excuse to get lazy in the faith. I think that that's one of the reasons that many of our sister denominations have an issue with the teaching of the rapture. Because one, it sounds too mystical for rational minds. 
as if we weren't part of a religion or something. I'm sorry. Um, but there has to be room. In order to have faith, there has to be a room for the mysterious. There has to be room for the unexplainable. Otherwise, God cannot be God. If God is held to the same confines as we are, he cannot truly be God. But he's saying here, be always excelling in the Lord's work. Keep at it. Don't let your hope be a reason to stop doing what you've been called to do. Feed your families. Share the faith. Share the love of God with others. Worship together. Do all these things. So this is, we've discussed the promise. Let's talk a little bit about the purpose. We talked about the corruptible. In other words, that which is earthly cannot inherit that which is heavenly, that which will decay over time and fall away and rot, for lack of a better term, cannot enter into a place where time has no meaning. The mortal cannot thereby inherit immortality. As an old pastor friend of mine used to say, the old mudhut here is not built for heaven. In fact, there was, uh, it's a Christmas carol, fit us for heaven to be with thee there. Make us capable of being in your presence, Lord. So a transformative change has to occur. First uh, John, the apostle, pins this for us. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, pin this in your notes, please. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, taking for granted that He will appear, that should never be in question. When he appears, we will be like him, the glorified Christ, the transfiguration which was the foretaste of his resurrection body. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies themselves just as he is pure. So John is using this concept of the rapture, of the, of the resurrection, as, as an impulse within the believer's heart to do better at what you're doing. Those who know better ought to do better. And if we're working for the Lord in gleeful anticipation of his arrival so that we will be changed to be just like he is, being able to understand him as he is, John sees this as a reason to be all the more loving, all the more giving, all the more doing. Not a reason to decline from ministerial opportunities. So scriptural clues that give us a, a, an understanding of, the, of being a glorified being. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, dimensionality. Christ, when he was resurrected, he was able to be touched and handled. In fact, your mind comes back to when he uh, looked at Thomas, who had said, unless I put my fingers in his and my hand through his, I will not believe. So Jesus, after he appears in the room, not having to go through the walls or the doors, he just 
comes in there, and we're going to get to that in just a second, goes over to Thomas and says, touch for yourself. Not only that, but every time he sees the disciples after his resurrection, he always eats with them. My kind of minister. Fried chicken minister. Fried chicken minister. Well, fish in his case, but we'll, we'll, we'll adapt. It was a different culture. But he had, he, he still had physical form. He wasn't like the Gnostics claimed in that he was just a spirit only, that he didn't leave tracks in the sand as he walked or that he, you know, he was a complete apparition. No, he had physicality, but yet he could enter a room without uh, using an entrance. John is telling us that not only will we and apparently in the meeting in the air, one can kind of surmise that gravity will no longer have a, that much of a claim on us either. Let's not go there. But that we will be like him, not only that we will be able to comprehend him as he is, because like him we will also be. There was in, in, the, in the old Anglican burial ceremony, it recounts the scripture in that we, we long for the day when our body may be transformed just as into, oh, I'm sorry, that our body may be, be as his glorified body. And that is a claiming of this promise. Second Corinthians chapter 5 again, but at the beginning of the chapter. We know that if our early tent, our early habitation, our earthly tabernacle... Uh, the more literal translation, in other words, our early temporary shelter. You know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an earthly dwelling in the heavens not made with an eternal dwelling, excuse me, an eternal dwelling, another kind of habitation. Not made with human hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, grown as in uh, trival, as in as birth pangs, as in we're waiting for the change, for a second birth, for a new generation of life to take place. Since we have been had taken it off, we will not be found naked. To be absent from the body in death is to be present with the Lord. So your soul is with Him. However... When the new heaven is minted, and that's something else that we have to take place, that we have to consider when the book of Revelation gets to the scene where the consummation of all things has a meeting point between the supernatural and the natural. The soul will not be just by itself floating around like a ghost. The soul of the departed, in fact, the soul of all, again, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Your soul will have a new habitation. It will have a new body is what he's effectively saying here. Will not be found naked. Oketarian, the Greek word meaning habitation. In fact, there is uh, some allusion to the fallen angels having lost theirs. That's another sermon. The dead in Christ are with God. The consummation of all things results in a new reality because at the end of Revelation, we hear about the new heaven, which is interesting. Because that means that the supernatural itself is renewed. And we also get a new earth. 
So all that we know of in nature and in supernature have been changed. A new reality comes into being. The soul must be given a new body capable of interacting with it on both counts. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And if you, if you have some qualms about the resurrection, what I'm calling the rapture right now, I want you to know that this, remember, this is the oldest book in your Bible. This was scrolled before the birth of Moses. The first bit of Hebrew wisdom literature that you could call it. And this is the confession of Job. I know my Redeemer lives. And at the end, He will stand on the dust even after my skin has been destroyed. Yet I will see in my flesh after this body has rotted away, after it has disintegrated and there's not one atom stacked upon another, nevertheless, I will see my Redeemer in a body, in the flesh, in the physicality of a new being. I will see my God. I will see Him myself. My eyes will look upon Him. And not as a stranger, my heart longs within me. This is getting into the doctrine of eminence. Now let me, and this is, this is in your notes, so I'll talk about it really quickly. When, when I say eminent, it's, it's in the, excuse me, it's in the fact that when something happens, it happens in succession. It's like at the beginning of Revelation, when these things will come to pass quickly, the word there is talking, which is where we get the word tachometer from. Meaning not that it will happen fast as in uh, something within this very moment, but that when it happens, it happens in rapid succession of time. One right after the other. So the very next, because of where we are in the church age, in the scripture story, what is the next expectation to happen? The rapture, the resurrection. That's the thing, that's the source of our hope coming next. It's the next big point in God's story. The end of the church age, yes. But that word is not imminent in the sense of God's eminence being that he is all present and engaged. Or imminent spelled completely differently. It's one of those words that it, that's, you know, where you have a bunch of words that sound alike with different meanings, like two, two, and two. Uh, eminent meaning that uh, the title of honor or distinguished performance, like an eminent professor of something, an eminent psychologist. Um, this means that we have a, a future expectation that's the next thing that we're looking for. It's an expectation without qualification, meaning that it could happen at any moment. We're going to talk about that in the next section. But... Um, Overall, believers are to expect and long for the return of Christ. And this is all throughout the scriptures. In fact, there is a special crown, a special heavenly reward called the crown of righteousness that is mentioned among other places in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that is reserved for those who long for his appearing. A special heavenly reward for those who both look for the day of the coming of Christ, look for the day of the ascension of the church, I should say, in the resurrection of the dead and the, the change of those who are believers, but also to work with gleeful expectation thereby. 
Hopefully I didn't overword that. I feel like I did. We long for his appearing, but while we while we long for his appearing, we still do the work. Occupy until I come. Yes. There's also been seven biblical raptures before, well, including the rapture of the church. In some of your commentaries, they'll either be known as transpositions or translations. Enoch, for instance, in the book of Genesis, that's also commented on by the writer of Hebrews. Elijah in 2 Kings. Jesus himself, multiple places, where he ascended to the Father. Philip, who disappeared in front of the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Paul, who was taken into the heaven of heavens and taught by Christ himself. There is, of course, the church, which is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. Well, that's the focus point. That chapter is actually the focus point of our next, chapter, uh, next session. And, of course, John himself, when Jesus tells him, come up hither, and he does. And what's really interesting, if you'll notice the asterisks there, the Greek word used for a good chunk of them is arpazo, literally rapture. Isn't that interesting? There's also a biblical pattern that we need to consider. Patterns which give us an indication of the nature of God and the way that God operates. For one, all those of the list of people that I mentioned, and, and this is a big source of controversy when we talk about Jesus' own commentary on uh, what the kingdom of heaven is like um, in Matthew chapter 24. Only those who have had a relationship with God are transposed, are raptured. In other words, two people are standing in a field. And they are working, but one of them disappears. Two ladies are at a meal together, and then one of them disappears. There are many that, that dispute the rapture by saying, if you look in context, this is about judgment. Well, yes, it is. But the thing about it is, every time that someone has disappeared in Scripture, taken out by the hand of God, it's always been the person that God loves the person that has an intimate relationship with God, the person that has sought them out in repentance. It is not the person who is being condemned. In times of the... I'll, I'll get into that argument when we get there. But I want you to notice that those who are transposed are the ones that have a close and personal relationship with God. Uh, those who are taken up for instruction, as was the case with Paul and John, those who receive a reward by being in his presence for their faithfulness and the close walk with him, as was the case with Elijah and Enoch. Uh, those who disappeared as an indicator or as a witness of the power of God, as was the case with Philip. Those who serve, uh, well, actually, Jesus is the only one who was taken up so he could actually act as intercessor for us in the great throne room of the universe by serving as our great high priest. He liveth to ever make intercession for us. That's his current ministry. How wonderful is it to know that your Redeemer has not only saved you, but he is praying earnestly for you 
every second of every day right next to the ear of God. And of course, the church, which is the fulfillment of the promise. What we can kind of derive from this is that the justified are able to find their shelter in God. The judged will suffer an earthly fate. More about that will come as we dive deeper into the book of Revelation, particularly when we see the five horsemen engaged in their episode. How many of you caught what I just said? How many horsemen are there in the book of Revelation? No. Death, pestilence, famine, I'm, I'm forgetting the other one. War. But there's another one that rides out on a horse of purest white. It is Christ himself. With the name on his thigh. Again, that's another sermon. But a bit of trivia I bet you didn't know, or at least didn't think about beforehand. I'll, uh, anyway, let's go on. For next session, please review Paul's um, teachings of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I also want you to take a look at this controversial image that Jesus presents for us. Not controversial because of Christ, but rather what his followers have made of it. In Matthew chapter 24, I also want you to take a, a retroactive look at Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. And while you're in Revelation 4, I want you to think of this. Where is the menorah? Where is the seven-pointed lampstand in that image? When John was talking to Jesus the first time, it was in the temple. Where is it now? I want you to think as you're pondering this, when will the resurrection take place in view of the book of Revelation? As you're taking a look at it, please discuss in your groups and please make sure that you are in frequent contact with your groups. That's not only good for just the fact that you're meeting together, you're talking to each other and you're enjoying Christian fellowship, but also as iron sharpens iron, you strengthen your friend. You sharpen each other's intellect. You build faith together in community. So please make sure that you keep those fellowships going. Journal your discussions. And I promise you, the more you talk about it, if you, if you, if you read it, you write about it, and you talk about it, then you got it. As Mike Sisson has a habit of saying. Mike, I'm sorry that I butchered it if you're, if you're ever watching this for some crazy reason. So next session, we will be in the rapture part two, right before we tackle the 70 weeks of Daniel, which I know for a fact will take more than one session. Uh, but this is all in preparation. And if you don't know what the, the book of Revelation, and I hate to say this because I used to be a mathophobic, the book of Revelation is similar in context to the way that a math textbook is constructed because all 
The answers are in the back, but the answers are absolutely useless if you don't know the question. If you don't understand the context of the rest of the Bible, and a lot of us as New Testament Christians have a tendency just to completely ignore the rest of Scripture. But that Scripture is what Revelation stands on the shoulders of. So we're going to, to do this to make sure that we're ready when we get to the, the harder elements or the, the more in-depth prophecy elements of Revelation. Any discussion or any questions before we, before we go to the Lord in prayer? Well, it's, it's, the question was back to a curious question about uh, the, Thomas's request to touch the hands inside of Christ post-resurrection. Um, my assumption was that he did because Jesus commanded him to. Because you said, unless, then you would not believe. So my assumption based on that reading of Luke is that yes, Jesus, I believe it was Luke, that yes, Thomas did touch the wounds on Christ. Any other questions or topics of discussion? Did you learn something this evening? Were you blessed this evening? Are you glad you came this evening? Well, that's people said. As always, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the effort, for the wonder, and for the majesty you took in creating this gift that we call the Bible. Help us to stand in awe and amazement of its riches, of its teachings, and of the way that through its pages we can hear your voice clearly. We can understand more both our place in your kingdom as well as your love for us and how all the more we should love you with everything that we are, our hearts, our minds, and our strength. So continue to use this time to make us and to form us ever more and more into the image of your Son so that when the time comes and we have the called opportunity by you to give that account of our hope, we can do so with your authority, with your convincing power, and we can do so in such a way that we will fulfill that commandment and honor your name. So be with us now as we leave this place. Walk with us all the way and help us to shine your light all the brighter, for it is in the most holy name of Christ we pray. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.